All right, well, welcome. Good morning. We're uh, going to pick up in our text of John chapter 17. So if you have your Bibles, uh, open up to John 17. We're going to, um, in a summary fashion, we're going to kind of, Lord willing, we're going to look at, uh, finish looking at the prayer here, Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, the end of his upper room discourse. And this, of course, that covers chapters 13 through 17 in John, in John's gospel. And we've been kind of looking at that in the last several weeks. And we're going to finish up uh, with this part of the prayer. Uh, this morning. If you have your Bibles and you're open to John 17, if you're able to, would you please stand the honor, in honor of reading God's Word? And we'll pick up in verse 1 of John 17. <clears throat> After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Thank you. You may be seated. As you remember, as we've been kind of going through this just as a way of review, in this great prayer, Jesus does some things that's really neat. He kind of reminds him almost, almost like a summary of his earthly ministry and also some things he's been sharing with in the previous chapters here to his, uh, his disciples and to us as well. Now, you, you, we talked about this last time, but if you notice, even when Jesus is praying for himself, uh, it's amazing how he does that. It's, it's like in relation to doing the Father's will and all about bringing glory to the Father through his obedience to the Father's will. And we talked about how this prayer is kind of divided up into three sections. The first section, the first five verses, is Jesus' prayer for himself. The next 14 verses are about Jesus' prayer for the 11. And then the last part of the chapter is about Jesus praying for all believers, which includes you and me, which is an amazing thought to think about. This prayer, we talked about this a week or so ago, is an amazing prayer. There's nothing like it in all this Bible. This is God the Son talking to God the Father. There's no prayer in the scriptures like this where we have the breadth and the depth of what Jesus is, what's on his heart as he's pouring this out to the Father for us to have. And he recorded it for us so we can have this. This is a very special prayer. And so it's just a great thing to come to and look at. By the way, this is probably the one that should be called the Lord's Prayer in the Bible. Uh, if you're going to call one the Lord's Prayer, this is uh, probably the one you should call that. The other one's probably better worded a model prayer. But anyway, and so verse 3 we talked about last couple of weeks. You know, How did Jesus define eternal life in verse 3? Best definition. He says that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's how, the, that's how Jesus just defines eternal life. And we talk about that word know. That's not just some casual understanding or you know, knowledge about something. That's the deepest level of personal relationship that you can have. It's like the intimacy between a husband and a wife. And it's just, it's the, there's no higher level of a relationship than what Jesus is referring to here. And so... So again, we see the emphasis from the Savior that the priority on his, of his mission was to give eternal life. So those who received this gift of life would know God in the highest and most personal way possible. And so we also looked at the next section last week. We looked at verses 6 through 8. and We saw Jesus begin to talk with his disciples. And we got to see three things we kind of summarized. We talked about the revelation of Jesus, the response to Jesus from the 11, and then the resources from Jesus, what we're going to look at today. And we kind of looked at the response to Jesus from the disciples last week. We talked about how they obeyed the word. They, were, uh, they accepted the word, and they believed the word. And we talk about how those three work together. Let's read verses 6 through 8 to help us here. This is uh, the disciples. Jesus begins this section praying for the disciples. In verse 6, he says, I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I have given them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with, they knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. We talked about how in this section you see they obeyed the word, they accepted the word, and they believed. You can't, you can't do any of that without each other. They all go together. 
You can't believe the word if you don't accept it. You don't receive it. You can't if you don't obey the word. You're not really accepting it. You're not really believing it. We talk about how the Pharisees were guilty of this. We kind of compare it by way of contrast the Pharisees' response to the word and the eleven's response to the word. And we talked about how the clear difference between the two. We did that in a section of Matthew chapter 23. Let's do this. Mark your place in John 17. We're going to kind of go to a couple other places, but we're going to keep coming back to John 17. Hold your finger there. Hold that with a piece of paper and go to Matthew 23. We use this passage here to illustrate the, the stark difference between the response to the Word of God from the religious crowd and that of the eleven, the true disciples of Christ. And this is Matthew 23 and verse 1. And Jesus uses some very descriptive and very powerful language here to describe <clears throat> Um, what's going on. Of course, we talk about this is Jesus getting in trouble again for doing something on the Sabbath, healing. And uh, it's amazing uh, how the religious crowd continually was always on to Jesus about doing the Father's will. But it didn't fit with their agenda. Verse 1, Then the Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make the phylacteries wide and their tassels long. They love the place of honor, banquets, and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and have the men call them rabbi. But you're not to be called rabbi, for you only have one master, and you're all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you only have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The grace among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And we talked about last week how that was the complete opposite of the, of the example that the Pharisees and the religious crowd had set for the people in Jesus' day. And we move down to verse, same chapter, verse 23. This whole chapter has several different specific things Jesus points out that they were doing that was wrong. But these, these three we're going to look at here kind of illustrate this, I think, the best way for our purposes today. Verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your dill, and your cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but the inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish. And then the outside will be clean also. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside. But on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. It's funny, we talked about mirror last week, we talked about the example. Jesus used hyperbole here to make a really strong point about, you, you, uh, how did he say in, in verse 24? Excuse me, in verse uh, um, 20, oh, I'm sorry. 24, thank you. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. The picture of, you know, they used to take these cloths, and they would filter the drinking water, because they're always about ceremony, and they were not going to do anything that would make them unclean, and a gnat was an unclean animal. So they'd take the pitcher of water and pour it into a cup with a little cloth or it to strain it, so no gnats would get in their water, so they could drink clean water, you know? And Jesus was saying, like, you do that, you go to all that work for that, but in the end, by everything else you do, you end up swallowing a camel, which is like a large unclean animal. The point being, you go to all this work to kind of avoid this little bitty thing over here, but your actions and your heart attitudes, you end up doing this, which is far worse. And so don't you think the disciples were listening to this? Because here's the point we talked about last week, remember? Here was the Word made flesh among them. They had the written Word which they rejected, and now they're rejecting the Son of God. 
When we're talking about how the disciples, you know, the disciples believed, they accepted it, and they obeyed. The Pharisees weren't willing to do any of those. And we talked about kind of the, the contrast about what was going on here. You know, Jesus, you know, again and again in his teachings, you see in his, in his emphasis is that God's not looking for the external from us. He's looking for the internal changes that only comes from him. Because those last forever, those are eternal. Those who focus on externals will always be about some rigid standard or code of conduct and making sure everyone keeps in line or measures up to some religious code or set of rules like these Pharisees. They love to use their standard, which is almost always man-made or at least man-altered, as a measuring stick to try and put, puff themselves up or puff up their beliefs and preferences. That's the crowd Jesus was dealing with here. Disciples and followers of Christ, because of the internal changes brought about by Jesus, will love others as God has loved them. They will serve others as Christ has served them. And, and he'll do they'll operate like Jesus did. They'll walk with mercy. They'll be humble. Remember we talked about back in chapter 13 what Jesus did? He says, now all the time had come. And he showed them the full extent of his love. What did he do? He washed their feet. The God of the universe did something that a common slave would refuse to do. Because he wanted to show them the full extent of his love. Because remember what we said in Mark chapter 10? The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for me. What a great example of that. And so he's time and time things he's teaching, the way he's walking through this life, he's, and the way he's praying, he's constantly reminding the, the disciples and us today, it's about what the Father's about. We want unity, not unity amongst ourselves. That's never the goal. It's unity with him. And the byproduct of that will be, he'll, he'll bring us together. Because only he can bring the body of Christ together. It's his body. And we kind of, we ended that section talking about Pharisees seek their own praise and their own promotion. They're agenda-driven. Whereas the follower of Christ will seek the praise and promotion of Jesus Christ. They're gospel-driven. Totally different heart and mindsets. And so we kind of ended and asked ourselves, are we believing the Word, accepting the Word, and obeying the Word? And do we live our lives according to the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God? That's the challenge. Some of those questions we had in the back of our minds, or forefront of our minds, really, on a regular basis we go throughout life. Was my response to that situation spirit-filled? Was that from a heart of love? Or this situation to come up and help somebody? Did I? Did I go wash their feet or did I just refuse to do that because that was beneath me? Or I was just, that's someone else's job. Do we have the Savior's kind of mindset and heart? So we're going to get to the, bring this section here in verse, uh, back to John 17. We'll pick up in verse 9. We talked about in this section here from 6 through 19 that there's three things we see in here. The revelation of Jesus, the response to Jesus, which we're just wrapped up as far as our summary. Today we're going to look at the resources from Jesus. And I've got six here listed. There's probably more. It's not exhaustive. We're going to look at six in this next set of verses here from 9 through 19. We're going to look at them in sets of two. First group of three and a second group of three. Here's what, I, here's what I can see. You can pull out from the scripture here. As Jesus is praying for his 11. Here's some of the resources he offers. His praying, his protection, his joy, his word, his sending, and his sanctification. Let's look at the first three. His praying, his protection, and his joy. And I tell you, when you see this, this is amazing stuff. You kind of stop and think about this for a second. Just the depth and just the unbelievable resources we have from him. The Son of God says he's, going, he's praying for them. He's praying for us. The Bible says he ever, ever, ever lives to intercede at the Father's right hand for us. Can you think of a time, past, present, or future when the Son of God's prayers never get answered? Can you think of a time that the Father's like, you know, Jesus, not today. They're one. What the Father's about, the Son's about. Now think about this. He prays for us that way. 
You know what else he offers us? If we'll walk with him and we'll seek him first, we'll draw near to him, he'll draw near to us. He'll teach us how to pray the same way. We'll be about what he's about. The things that are important to him will be important to us. Pastor Lee always says the prayers that originate in heaven are the ones that get answered. We know what's on his heart and mind. We'll know how to pray according to his will. It'll change our prayer life. And so, so he sees praying for us. His protection. Look at verse 11. Part 11, second part of verse 11, and we'll look at verse 12 here. Chapter 17. He says this. He says, Let's <clears throat> back at the start. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave them, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name that you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction. So the scripture would be fulfilled. <laughs> he's not saying we're going to be protected from difficult times or hardships. Think about what he's thinking about. This is, I think it's probably one of those verses in scripture that probably 99% of us, including me for a long time, read by and then really stopped to say, what did he just say here? This is profound. <laughs> Verse 12. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction. So the scripture will be fulfilled. If we're his child, we are forever secure. He protects us by his name. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Not now, not ever. Because he protects us. That's an awesome thing. We're in a battle. And I'm, I'm, I've never been in that. I don't really think what that's like. But they always you see pictures of these guys wearing all this gear and armor and all this, all this stuff. I think you probably want to know that protection. I've played paintball one time, and I'm a coward. I'm allergic to pain. And so what I did was I made sure I had all these clothes on to kind of stop that from hurting as bad as possible. I was behind every barricade I could find. I'd run behind every kid, middle school. I didn't care how old they were. I'm running behind them, so they're the ones that are going to get hit and not me. I want to make sure I was protected, you know? Can you imagine being in the real battle that we're facing, knowing that we're protected? I mean, you've got, like Paul says, hey, to be asked for the body to be with the Lord. I'm still protected. To lead this life is not being unprotected because I know where I'm going. I know who bought me. I know who purchased me. I know we were going through Romans 8. We're talking about this. We've been saved. We've been sealed. And we can be sure. Isn't that a great, isn't that a great truth? I've been saved. I've been sealed. Which means it's not going, you can't take away the seal that God's put on your life. And I can be sure of that. So when we're in a situation I face, there's that un unwavering confidence. My circumstances may scare the life out of me. They may make me unsure about a lot of things. One thing I'll never be unsure about, my hope is in the Lord. And he will never leave me. He will never forsake me. He's never going to come up short. I may not understand what I'm going through. I may not even like it. I may not even agree with it. But I know I'm protected. His joy. Oh, I love this one. 13. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Have you ever, um, <laughs> have you ever been to like the mall? My wife. She leaves me when I go to the food court. Remember those places that give out sample of foods, you know? Like little ice cream samples or little chicken samples. I go, I'd make the loop. If I can, I'll make more than one time. You know, me and Aaron go, let's go get some chicken over here. You get like these little samples, then it's gone. He's not talking about that here, is he? The full measure of my joy. It doesn't run out. It doesn't give out. It's always there. There's a couple of verses that help us with that. Just kind of hold your place. Your back up a page to John... Uh, 15 and verse 9. And earlier in his time with the disciples, he said this with them. 
It's John 15 and 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Hold it uh, back at one more page to John 14. Well, actually, maybe the same page or to your left on verse 27. Look what he says here. Peace. Think about this. this is all on the same night. He says this stuff over and over again so it's embedded in their minds and their hearts. And for us too. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. I tell you, as I was looking through this, this thought hit me. You know, when he gives, he gives generously, doesn't he? He doesn't give like those guys in the food court. Here's just one or two, but that's all you get, you know, which is really disappointing to me. But anyway, they don't, that's all I get. But with Jesus, it's not that way. Overflowing. It's abundant. Above and beyond what we could ever imagine. And I wrote this down as I was thinking through this. The believer's life should be one characterized by that of joy. The joy of the Lord and our joy in the Lord. You know? Now, I'm not talking about this crowd that puts the face on it, the little, the little happy face. Oh, great. Everything's great. You know, you hear about this tragedy that went through and they're just like putting a face on it. Like, no, no, let's be real. How are you doing? You know? Christian life is hard. doesn't mean you have hard days. It doesn't mean it's difficult. It's okay to have a difficult day. There's no shame in that. As long as you don't stay there. But you can still have joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Isn't that a great truth? Even when everything else seems to become an unravel, we come back to that truth. That's where we hang our hats. You know what? I don't understand this situation, God. I don't know how I'm getting through this. But you say the joy of the Lord is my strength, and that's where I'm going to camp. I'm going to take you to your word, and I'm going to walk by faith. So I love that. What a great God. And so he kind of reminds us here that, you know, a life that even though when difficult seasons do come, we can find our strength, our hope, and our joy in the Lord. Of course, Paul says, you know, he counted all joy. I don't know about you, but I've never been through what Paul's been through. And uh, But man, to say that from his perspective, he got it. All right, let's look at the uh, next three. We talked about his praying, his protection, his joy. Let's look at, we're going to spend the rest of our time here, his word, his sending, and his sanctification. This is verses 14 through 19. Let's look at that real quick. John 17, verse 14. <clears throat> I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. You know, it's kind of funny. I was looking at this. I thought, you know, <laughs> here you see that Jesus just says them, you know, they've just been given God's word and his revelation of the gospel, which has been hidden for ages. They have this revelation. They're now stewards of the gospel to take it to the world. He says, oh, by the way, the world's going to hate you. So what does he do? He sends them into the world. He's <laughs> like, if I'm, if I'm an 11, my first thought would be, can we check that one, Lord? Is that, is that, did you say that right? Did I hear that right? But he says, they're not of the world, even I'm not of it. Here's the key. He says, in that word, he says, he's, um, in verse 14, he says, um, verse 15, he says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Verse 16, They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. When he talks about sanctifying this section, you know what that word means in the Greek? To set apart. To make holy. Think about that. 
He's setting them apart. Why? Because of the gospel. That's why they're being sent into the world. Now, now here's the thing to think about. We'll get that in a second. Just as Jesus was sitting in the world. That's a very important part. That if we're not careful, we'll overlook that. So, these guys were now stewards of the gospel. They've been kept hidden. So he sent them, he sent them into the world. And so, if you look at this, as in the Christian life, we have to be on guard against this. It's an easy trap to fall into. I grew up in churches where this is kind of our mentality. If we're not careful, we'll, as Christians, we want to try to avoid the world. If we're not careful, we'll put up our, you know, have like a withdrawal or retreat mentality. We try to build up our walls or isolation and just orchestrate and plan our lives in such a way that we never encounter or interact with lost people on any level for any reason. We'll try to function every aspect we can away from the world. And we'll, we'll make it sound good. We don't want to be tainted by the world. We don't want to this in the world, but not of it. That's the command. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. And so here's what I wrote now. I've got to think about that. You know, as we do this, we might be out of fear because we might get dirty or become unclean. Kind of like the Pharisee, the religious crowd in Jesus' day. And they would void, the, they would void people like crazy because of fear of becoming unclean. But you look at Jesus' confession in Matthew 16, or Peter's confession of Jesus, you know, they're going through this, and Jesus is like, well, who, did the, who do people say that I am? And some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah or one of the other prophets. And Jesus is like, no, no, who do you say that I am? And Peter says this, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We're going to have to leave our holy huddles in order to be in position to do what that verse says. The gates of hell pictures an offensive posture. The gates are usually at the city to keep people out, right? The gates of hell. In other words, the picture of the Christ, of the church, taking the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. And I tell you, we're going to have to leave our holy huddles and actually be engaged in the battle the Lord has called us to wage. We have to remember we serve a risen Savior and we serve Him in a time of war. It's the war for men's souls. This is not a peacetime assignment. We're in war. It's a spiritual warfare. And it's a serious thing. Look what he says here in this section. Don't take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one. I love this. Jesus asked for them to be protected from the evil one as they live and serve in the world in which they live. So Jesus assumes something here by this prayer. He assumes <laughs> that the believer is going to be in, in, attacked by the enemy. He's asked for protection. Why would an enemy attack you? Why would Satan bother anybody who's a believer? You have to see him as a threat or a hindrance to his kingdom. Otherwise, he'd just leave you alone and spend his energy elsewhere because he's not like God. He doesn't have unlimited energy. He doesn't have all knowledge and all power. He can't be everywhere at once. If Satan were standing right here, he could not be in China or even next door. He'd be right here. He's nothing like God. Not even close. You can't compare them. That would be an, that's an offensive. That's an offense to God. To compare anything to him, for that matter. Satan is not that. He's powerful. He's a very powerful enemy. But compared to God, he's less than nothing. We need to we need to get that down. We need to know that like we know anything else. He's nothing compared to God. He's defeated. But he's still an enemy. So he assumes something here with the disciples that they're going to be attacked. The enemy's going to come after them. They need protection. Because he's a real enemy. And I thought about that. I thought, you know, <laughs> would my life be a threat to the enemy? You know, I mean, really, would it be a threat? Or am I kind of secluded over here? Am I maybe just not doing anything? Maybe I'm going to church. I grew up in a church. I'll tell you, it was so sad. 
we uh, we were surrounded by lost people in this community we were in growing up when I was growing up in Tennessee. And most people probably call it a bad area of town where our church was. And we isolate ourselves. We go to that church all the time. And man, we didn't go outside those walls for nothing. We hardly ever walked down the block to, to check in on these families around us who were dying and going to hell every single day. So one guy decided to do that. He started bringing these kids into our church who looked nothing like the rest of us. Hey, you talking about a wake-up call? It was awesome. We got to see God do some things that, I mean, it was just unbelievable. Because he understood something, you know. Here we are, basically in the home office, the enemy for this city, and we're leaving him alone. So he left us alone. But once we started going out, man, you are you talking about attacks? You talk about challenges? We went through it. It was incredible that the opposition that came against the people that that, that were, the guy was raising up to do that. Things that you would look back and if I told you what was going on, you're going, who would be against that? It was crazy. So he says, don't take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one. He says, not of the world. Jesus says, they're not of the world, just like I'm not of the world. And he's warning us to be in the world, but not of it. Look at this. A couple examples of Matthew that I think are very, very uh, applicable here. Matthew 5. If you have your Bible, turn left to Matthew 5. In verse 14. Very familiar passage. This is, of course, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Look what he says in, in uh, 5 and verse 14. <clears throat> he says, you are the light of the world. He's talking to his disciples here. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Look at... Um, I'm going to look at Philippians 2. I wasn't sure if we're going to do this, but let's do that right now real quick. Philippians 2, and we'll put these together. First, this is Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And there's several things going on here, but just look at this. This is right after <laughs> this amazing prayer he has about our attitude being like that of the Savior. And pick up in verse 12 of chapter 2. Look how Paul words a similar thing here. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I, did not, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. These pictures here of the body of believers, the church of the living God, to be light. And when you have the light and you're surrounded by darkness, we're to be light in a dark world. And that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the picture you see time and time throughout the scriptures. Is that no matter, um, I wrote this down, and you know, if you look at where we've been in John chapter 13 through John chapter 17, especially when you get to John 15, we get a chance to cover that because it was really impossible to approach that chapter and do the time that needed. But John 15 is an amazing chapter. And everybody's probably familiar with John chapter 15. But if you look at John chapter 15, you get this principle and many others with that. That he's dealing with the leaven and with us. That if the leaven in us would stay in the word, and the word would be in us, then we would truly be set apart or sanctified for the work we are called to do. The point is, and the, the thing to remember is, we, I think Brian was alluding this earlier in his prayer, and I think maybe in Spencer too, 
as a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm called to follow you. Not a program or methodology. All this, all this other stuff, we're not careful. What the Pharisees had done that Jesus did, they were following a set of rules and regulations. Most of them were traditions you know, passed on from men. They weren't anything to do with the heart of God. And they got so far away from the heart of God that they got in a place, in a place that, that God never intended them from to be. Look at Matthew chapter 9, and verse 10. And we'll get back to the 17 and wrap up. John, uh, excuse me, Matthew uh, chapter 9. <clears throat> this is a... <laughs> It's a great set of verses here. And this is after Jesus called Matthew, uh, sometimes called Levi, who was a tax collector, which was considered lowest of the low in that culture. You've probably heard this before. They were hated. They were considered traitors by the Jews because they in, kind of worked with the Romans. And they usually, most of the time, they usually cheated the, the people out of extra money. That's how they made their money. Verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Something they would never do, by the way. On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. There's a lot of things that Jesus says in some of the strongest language about these guys. This is probably one of the strongest. If we're not careful, you can kind of miss it. He gives him a strong warning here. And to us today, he says, it's, you know, <laughs> it's not the healthy who need a doctor. This is verse 12. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. See, these Pharisees did not see their need for salvation or repentance because of their, their self-righteous attitude. And I wrote how, how Jesus clearly states the problem with the Pharisees lacking. As, and Jesus says this in verse 13. Here's the problem the Pharisees missing. Out is our mercy, not sacrifice. He's like, guys, all the stuff that you do and do and do keeps taking you further and further away from me. Because you're not listening to what I'm saying. Remember, we, we said last time, we talked about how in John chapter 5, he says, he's talking religious leaders, that you, know, you search the scriptures, you diligently search the scriptures because you think by them you possess eternal life. But these are the scriptures that point to me. But you won't come to me to have life. And that was the problem. They were very religious. They had the word of God, but they weren't accepting it. They weren't believing it. And they weren't obeying it. What they'd done is kind of changed it so much so that it was unrecognizable by the time Jesus came on the scene here in his earthly ministry. And it just kind of morphed into all these rules and regulations that their elders had set up. And it was unrecognizable. And so Jesus says, you know what? Verse 12, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And verse 13, this is the warning. This is a strong warning. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You know what he's saying to them? You guys are all about studying the, the scriptures. You're all about finding all the little nuances of this text and that text. You think you know this text, but go learn this. Here's what you need to go learn. I desire mercy. Not sacrifice. Those are two different hearts. Those are not the same thing. One's an empty, dead religion. And one is about a relationship with the risen Savior. And Jesus is saying, you, you got all this stuff that you think you've learned, but forget that. Go learn this. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. When God speaks, He speaks from a heart of love and mercy. When He brings uh, conviction, it's always from a heart of love and mercy. 
where he brings anything he brings to us, discipline, always from a heart of love and with mercy. When he came to save us, it was out of his infinite love and mercy. And these Pharisees had missed that. Because what happens is if you're about religion, you become unmerciful. You become so rigid that you can't get past the rules. <gasps> oh, do you see what that, that guy didn't strain the water. He's drinking gnats. Really? I was in a church one time, and I think I shared this with you before, and I got stuck having a usher one time in this part of the building. I'd never done it. It's a huge church. <clears throat> At the time, I was teaching middle school. And these guys, I walked up behind them, and they were just getting themselves so worked up. You see that guy over there wearing that ball cap? Man, I got a good mind to go take that ball cap off of him. It's so disrespectful. Just getting there, just talking. He's just angry, angry. Walked up. I'm sitting there. I said, Lord, show me how to respond to these guys. That's not angry because I'm really mad right now. They didn't know something about that young man. That young man had never been in church before. He happened to be in my Sunday school class that morning. One of his friends, who's a believer, strong believer, brought one of his lost friends because he wanted him to hear the gospel. We got to share the gospel with him that morning. I walk up to behind these guys and I just said, you know, guys, I don't know about you, but I'm just excited that he's here. This guy doesn't know Jesus. He's never been in church before. I'm just excited he's here, hat and all. Just walked off. Because if I said anything else, it would have been in the flesh. You know, I went back, I was telling you about my church earlier. One of the things that we did, which you would think is a great thing, but our church had a hard time with this. We started inviting people from our community inside the church who weren't like us. They were, they were black. We were white. And um, most of these kids came from the projects. Stuff that most of us can't relate to. Crack houses in the street. Drug houses. People getting shot. Most of the guys who came and got, we had a bunch of them who came over the years. And all the ones that I knew that came really good friends, none of them knew their dad. Not one of them. None of them lived with their dad. One of my friends lived with his grandparents because he didn't have a mom and dad. Mom abandoned him. These were the kind of kids that God was starting to bring to us. And George was the guy who did this. And George... The Lord put on George's heart to do something. These are all inner city kids. George was an old white guy. To me, I was, you know, 15 at the time. George was probably in his maybe late 50s, early 60s, but he was in poor health. Knew nothing about basketball, but he started a basketball team so he could get these guys to come in and share the gospel with him. Well, they started coming. At first, nobody kind of buying too much, but then people started getting a little upset about this. And then some of them started bringing some other friends. And then we went this season where stuff started missing. But that, that was a very short season, to be honest with you. Then something happened. Some of these guys started getting saved. And they kept coming. And they kept coming. You think, man, God's going to wake up our church. We're in a business meeting one Wednesday night. I hated business meetings growing up. If you're like me, you grew up in a typical Southern Baptist church. You just cringe when you hear the word business meeting. This is unhealthy church. Let me clarify that. I'm sitting in the balcony. And, of course, my friends are sitting there with me. Guys on each side of me were black. Another guy down the side of me, he was white, but he's the guy who didn't have any parents. He lived with his grandparents. And um, we actually had a church fight about whether we're going to let black people come to our church. Out loud. My first thought was like, I just put my head down. I was just shaking like, oh, Lord, really? And the guys beside me, they were kind of laughing. It was kind of a nervous laugh. I said, guys, that's, no, that person doesn't speak for us. Please. And they're just, oh, don't worry about that. I was like, well, the first person gets up right after that responds. He jumps up to the microphone and appreciates his heart. He said what everybody in church wanted to say to that person. 
If you've got a problem with you know, black people, you need to find a new church. Got a standing ovation. My first response was, yes. Then my second response was like, that's not you either, Lord. That's not you either. George gets up. <laughs> for George to walk up to a microphone, everything for him was difficult because he had a severe heart condition, so he had a hard time breathing. He, they told us at one point he had six months to live. He lived 14 years. <laughs> it's a walking miracle. Every time, and every doctor's like going, there's our miracle. Because he, he there's no medical reason for him to live past the diagnosis. None. It's ridiculous. It was God. Because God wasn't done with him. George walks up to the microphone. I'll never forget what happened. It changed my life. He shared what God had put on his heart. And in that moment, it's the first time I experienced this to this degree ever, you could feel the Holy Spirit just come in. And everybody got quiet. No one could say a word. Because we just heard from God. He didn't love. He didn't, he didn't go after that woman. It wasn't that at all. He just redirected us to the heart of the Savior. He did with such love and such compassion and mercy. I thought, wow. And everybody just sat there for a minute. He sat down quietly. And everybody sat, nobody said a word. It was like a couple minutes. It was just really awkward. Finally, somebody got it because they didn't know what to do. It was just everybody sat there. You know what happened after that? The individual, just to show you how God just works. And even this person's life, I thought, never going to get it. This person used to terrify me as a kid growing up. She's an older individual. Every time you see her in the hall, she yells at you, stop running in the hall. You, know, you'd like, you see her and you kind of slide down the hall, you know, to kind of get away from her. Or you go, I, we literally would run the other way just to go around. We'd go up the floor and around and come around. So we'd have to walk by this woman. She terrified all the kids in the church. Yelling at us, stop running in the church, stop having fun, you know. It's like, wow, oh, bless you. And so she scares to death. You know what happened to her? I didn't find this out until after she died later on. The youth guy came up to me and said, Dave, you know, um, I said something. And I said in the wrong spirit. I said something about her. I said, man, that one, she's a difficult lady. I said, well, what's her problem? He said, well, he said something to me. I'll never forget. He said, you know, um, I don't, you don't know this. I'm just going to share this with you. And he just blew me away. <laughs> this woman apparently had some money, I guess. That's why they apparently never confronted her in her sin. She began paying for every student who could not go to camp. Including the black ones. <laughs> you know what she did when she died? She set up a scholarship. She set an endowment up for a scholarship fund. Kids are in need. That's the gospel. It changes lives. When God spoke, this woman got it. And it got her. When that word went out, she received it. She accepted it. She believed it. She repented, and she obeyed. And you know, when I got to thinking as he was telling me this, I thought, now that you come to think of it, I never heard her speak up again in public. Not one time. She never yelled at me after that. It didn't dawn on me. I was like, you know, I've, I've she hasn't yelled at me in years. Wow, I think you might be right. She totally changed. She became a totally uncharacteristic. She became a quiet individual because God had changed her. I still go back to that time I learned about that. Look what it says here in John 17.3. This is our definition we've been working off of for the last several weeks. Kind of the key verse in this section. Now this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you know the Savior, and you love the Savior, you're going to be about what He's about. Your heart and your mind are going to be so permeated with His love and with His concern. What's important to Him is going to be important to you. 
I wrote this down, you know. If we're not careful, we can be led astray by the pursuit of just anything, whatever. You know, growing up, it was always the American dream. When I was growing up, the church was just about church. It wasn't really about the gospel. Church activity. It wasn't anything evil, but it just wasn't the gospel. It's evil in the sense that it took us away from the gospel. But if we're not careful, we can be led astray by some pursuit of a religious agenda that may take our emphasis for our lives or our church and make it something other than the gospel. Jesus was sent into the world to save a lost and dying world from their sins. He didn't come to make me a better citizen. He didn't come to make me a better dad or husband or a better father or a better employee or employer. He didn't come for any of that. He came because I was lost in my sin and I needed a Savior. If we're not careful, we have to be on guard that we don't settle for living for the byproducts or the fruit of the gospel, which would be a better dad, a better husband, a better all these things. That's fruit from what the gospel produces. We don't live for the fruit. You know, Church of Corinth got in trouble for that. They got so focused on all the gifts. Put one gift over another or one teacher over another. Remember what Paul says? Who are these people? Who's Paul? The point was, he says, the focus was, you know what, when I came to you, I pretended on nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. They lost their, they took their heart and their minds and their eyes off the gift giver. And they made all these other things and they lifted them, elevated them above the Savior. If we're not careful, we, we can be in danger of doing the same thing. So as we wrap up, let's look at this section of the uh, um, last part of the prayer. we got Jesus prays in verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. I love this. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's all of us in this room, by the way. He's praying for us here. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. You know, when Jesus is praying for the believers who are going to believe through the message of the leaven, it's really not just the leaven. It's really, I think, us too. We can make application as we go and live our lives. Those who are going to believe through the message, the gospel we take to them. You know, let's say he prays for us. Don't miss this. Our prayer, this <laughs> is, he says that all of them may be one. Unified. Don't be trying to push this over here and this over here. Elevate this. Devalue that. To have unity doesn't come from us agreeing with each other. Because that's never going to happen. It never should happen. We're part of the body of Christ. There are so many different facets. I mean, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. All of us come from so many different backgrounds. So many different likes and dislikes, different histories, different journeys to the, to the faith. What has united us, not this building, not this room, not me, not Pastor Lindsay, none of that, not what we wear, that doesn't unite anybody. What unites us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that unites us. Anything else will divide. If we put anything that's smaller than God above him, it brings division. And the enemy knows that. 
That's why he always wants to throw in little whispers. You know, like he did with Paul. It's the gospel, but circumcision. No, it's the gospel. Well, it's the gospel plus, you know, like the Judaizers do. But it's also doing all these other things. No, it's the gospel. And so as we, as we wrap up, the thing I want to leave us with, this thought is this, you know. Does my life, does your life, does the life of our church, as we go forward, and where God has us now, are we about what he's about? The thing that's important to God, is it important to us? Can I say with all honesty that my main purpose in going life is to know the heart of the Father, to know him and to be known? I've said this before, you've heard it say it before, but it's worth repeating as we wrap up. You know, King David was, if you think about this, King David was, we said, well, David, of all the people in the Old Testament, I don't know of anybody in the Old Testament who has all their blots and blemishes recorded like he does. The guy had a lot of problems. He's called a man after God's own heart. He was a lousy dad. But he was a man after God's own heart. He was a pretty bad father or a husband because he had way too many wives. But he's a man after God's own heart. What God was showing us through that is, in David's life, when he was anointed to be king, maybe 15 years old, he never pursued the throne. Not one time. He could have been king way before he was king. He was king at 30 over the southern kingdom. And six years later, he was king of the whole kingdom. But at 30, it was before he became king. So for at least 15 years, he wasn't king. Part of, a good part of the time, he was running for his life. And several times, he could have been king by force very easily. It would been an easy thing for him to do. I thought about this. Somebody says this in the graduation today, and I, I hear this all the time, and I just kind of cringe when I hear it, but one of the individuals said, pursue your dreams, pursue your passions. Don't ever, ever do that. Never pursue your passions. Never pursue your dreams. That is not from God. David never once pursued his calling to be the king of Israel. He pursued God. And in his pursuit of God, God worked it out step by step, detour by detour that seemed to be, till he got to the point when he became king, he was king. He was God's king. He was prepared, and he was in the position, not just physically, but he was in this position spiritually to be the leader of God's people. Because all the things that God was showing him through that journey was preparing him for the assignment that God had for him. Because he learned through those years in the wilderness to trust and depend on God. That God was his sufficiency. God was his all in all. God was his first love. Not the throne. Not the kingdom. But the God who gave it to him. That's what we have to be careful. Don't let anything or anyone take priority over the Savior. It's an easy trap to fall into. As we pray, just remind the warning in Ephesus in Revelation 2. They got in trouble for leaving their first love. They were doing a lot of good things. But they, they had a who's who's of pastors. Paul, Apollos, John. I mean, some think Peter for a while. It's crazy who led that church over the years. You go back to the book of Acts when Paul got there. You look in the church in the book of Ephesus, probably maybe 10 years later, or Ephesians, and you look probably 25, 30 years later in Revelation. You see this journey this church takes. You see, by the time you get to Revelation, they had, a, they had all this stuff, but they had one thing that was so, is so important to God, He threatened to remove their lampstand. You know what that was? It wasn't this particular sin as far as, hey, you're doing this practice, or you're not doing this. 
they left their first love. Because God knows if we do that, we ever do that, individually or corporately, that opens us up to everything else. Our defenses are down, and we're in a place that we don't ever want to be. If you and I leave our first love, nothing else we do matters. Nothing else we do will make up, can make up for that. I cannot make myself be a better Christian or a better dad or better anything if I'm not where I need to be with my walk with the Lord. It does not happen. I don't care how many good things I do. I don't care what list I keep. Pharisees were blind to that. That's why Jesus kept calling them blind. They were missing the truth right in front of them. Faith comes by what? Hearing. They wouldn't hear. Hearing comes by what? The Word of Christ. Does my life and your life line up to this book? Not my interpretation of this book. Not anyone else's interpretation. Not the Pharisees' interpretation of the book in Jesus' day, for that example. Does my life line up to this book? Everything is filtered through here. I don't filter anything through anything else. It has to be filtered through here.